few days before Christmas, a pastor in Virginia emailed me and some other acquaintances to ask us to pray for his 15-year-old daughter. She had been taken to the hospital that day uh, after having sudden a sudden onset of very serious seizures. She had never had seizures before, and now they wouldn't stop. So they called an ambulance, took her to the hospital. They were actually visiting some friends that are in a different part of Virginia than, than where they live. But she's been in the hospital ever since. They had to significantly sedate her, uh, where essentially she's been relatively unconscious for the last, you know, what is it, 16 days or so now. But in the many uh, really daily, sometimes two or three times daily email updates that this pastor has sent out to me and some other friends, he has commented on how wonderful the many doctors and nurses have been who have been caring for their daughter, uh, Eden. Those doctors, he has reported, have tremendous skill and insight. They collaborate together in beautiful ways. People from all over uh, medical professions uh, coming together to pool their wisdom in ways to help this this young 15-year-old girl, uh, hopefully to help her eventually recover. But a shorthand way of saying what this pastor has said over and over again in those conversations about uh, those doctors and nurses is that it is good to have those people on their side. It's good to have the right people lining up and working for your benefit. Maybe this is the same idea as when you know, a, uh, a baseball player who has a teammate who's a pitcher who's just been pitching lights out, like no one's able to make significant contact with the ball when this pitcher's on the mound. And those baseball players, those defensive players would say, it's really good to have that guy on our side because, man, I do not want to have to go to bat against him. Or it's really good that I don't have to tackle that guy. I'd rather have him on my side. What they're saying is it's good to have the right people on our side. And our preaching passage today is Psalms 123, 124, and 125. I've combined or grouped these three psalms together because they all have a similar theme, that God's people are safe and content because they have the Lord himself on their side. This passage begins on page 484. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided under the seats near you. So I'll be reading... First, uh, as we begin here, just from Psalm 123, we'll read the other two psalms uh, in good time throughout this sermon. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. As we read and study these psalms today, what we'll see is that as a Christian, you can live with certainty that the Lord will give you exactly what you need. Live with certainty that the Lord will give you exactly what you need. So what is it exactly here in Psalm 123 that the Lord gives? I think it's fairly obvious to us in verse 2 and in verse 3. The Lord gives us His mercy. You can know that the Lord will give you mercy. And the first phrase of the psalm reminds us of a couple 
of the song we sang a couple weeks ago, or just last week, I believe, and that we preached through the week before that, or maybe two weeks before that, Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come from? And psalmist here, possibly the same psalmist who wrote Psalm 121, we don't know that, but it is the same, he knows the answer. It's from the Lord. The Lord is the one who will help you on your best days and on your worst days. The Lord is the one who helps you through the long nights and through the short gray days, as we just prayed about a few minutes ago. The Lord is the one who will give you His mercy. And so I urge you, Christian, to lift up your eyes to the Lord. To look to Him for your help. Do not look to your food habits. Do not look to your social media habits. Do not look to your entertainment habits. Lift up your eyes to the Lord the one who is enthroned in the heavens, which reminds me of Psalm 2. I'll just flip back there very briefly. Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What's he laughing about there? He's laughing at the fact that there are people who hate him and think they can oppose him and fall utterly on their faces in trying to do so. He is the one who is enthroned in the heavens. He is the one to whom we lift up our eyes. This God is totally sovereign. He's not threatened by the scheming of man, by the actions of mankind. This reminds me as well of Psalm, or I should say of Isaiah 40. What are, when you combine all the forces of humanity and put it all together, what does that amount to? It's like a drop in a bucket. That's what Psalm 40 tells us. This is the God that we trust. This is the God to whom we look, to whom we lift up our eyes. And the way we look at him, the way we keep our eyes fixed on him, which I appreciate that we sang about that earlier today, it's like servants who are constantly standing behind a table watching their master eat his meal, and at the slightest glance they know exactly what he wants, and they're going to go get it. Maybe he needs a refill of water. Maybe he needs a certain condiment brought to him and all they have to do is lock eyes with him and so they're standing there at attention the entire time waiting to see what does that person need because I'm going to get it the second he needs it and that's the way our eyes are to be fixed on the Lord the way that a servant fixes his eyes on his master or the way that a maidservant looks to the hand of her mistress she's constantly attending to her saying what is what is her need how can I meet it even be aware of what she needs before she even calls for it and this is the way that our eyes are to be fixed on the Lord himself locked in on who he is and what he does for us because he is truly on our side as we'll see as we go along here what are they looking for why are their eyes looking to the Lord so attentively because they know they have a need and their need is for his mercy That's what the end of verse 2 tells us. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And I just want to remind you, I know you know this, but your greatest need is for the Lord's mercy. And the way that you need his mercy more than any other way is for the forgiveness of sins, which is given to you through your faith in Jesus Christ, who atones for all of your sins, the big ones and the small ones that you don't even register, they don't even cross your mind because they're such tiny sins. The Lord is the one who forgives you of those big and the small, and he does so through his mercy. You know, years ago, I think this was probably in uh, 2012, I had to remember. This was at our church in New Jersey, and someone uh, coming up on the election there between, I think it was between Mitch Romney and Barack Obama, and somebody said, we need to pray that God has mercy on our country. Uh, just, so what would that look like 
for God, to, and uh, you know, the obvious answer was for one person to win and another person to lose, one person in particular to win. And I said, okay, it is good to pray for the Lord to have mercy on our country, but let's just step back and ask ourselves, has he been merciful to us? And I would say he's been super merciful to us. And one of the ways you can see his mercy is by the fact that you hold his word in your hands. You realize there are entire people groups in the world who do not have a sliver of the Bible in their language. And you hold the entire Bible in your hands. That's the way God has been merciful to us. And we could go on and on about the ways the Lord has been merciful to our country, the way he's been merciful to our churches, and the way he's been merciful to you as an individual. And you should make a list. You should just chart out the ways that he has been merciful to you. But here, this prayer for mercy is in recognition of the fact that we do desperately need his help. And so the actual request for mercy is in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. And now he tells us specifically what the need is that makes him have to pray for this mercy. It's that we have had more than enough of contempt. And he'll elaborate on that for a few more sentences in the next verse, but this idea of having more than enough reminded me of uh, Clarissa's grandma in Florida who died this past May. But whenever we would go visit her, uh, throughout the time I was dating Clarissa, engaged, and then married to her, we'd go visit her in this um, very rural setting in Florida. And when we'd be sitting at the table at meals with Clarissa's family, Clarissa's grandma would just be hovering around the table. She would literally never sit down during the meal. And maybe you've seen this, maybe you've practiced this, maybe you've, you've done this yourself. But she would just be hovering around the table making sure that the second you took a drink, she refilled your drink. Or the second you finished your biscuit, you got a new biscuit. Even if you didn't ask for it, you're getting another biscuit or another piece of chicken. And you could go on and on. She was making sure you always had more than enough on your plate. And this is what the Lord, or what the psalmist is describing here, that we have had more than enough, like, not just a little bit. There has been an outpouring, but it has been a positive outpouring. An outpouring of what? You can see that in verse 3, the second half of verse 3. We've had more than enough. It's like our plates are always full of contempt, of people who hate us. That's what God's people were saying. We have a need because people hate us and want our destruction. They've had scorn. They've had contempt because we follow God. So maybe this takes the appearance of people mocking your faith. Come on. You're believing that Christian fairy tale? Like, what are you really thinking? Maybe the... the, The scorn you face comes from within. You fear that your faith will fail because you are constantly wrestling with whether what you believe is true or not. And maybe you're wrestling with that because one of your best friends has recently walked away from the faith or one of your family, beloved family members who you looked up to their faith and they've walked away from the faith and you've been shaken by it. And so now you are fearing that your faith will fail. You're you're dealing with scorn and contempt even just from your own thoughts. Like, could this possibly be true? Because... If it really is true, how would that person walk away from the faith? But in response to your cry for mercy here in verse 3, the Lord responds. He doesn't have to. He's not obligated to give you his grace, his mercy, his help. But he gives clarity. He gives wisdom. He gives perspective. He helps you zoom out and stand back a little bit, look at the situation rightly from a biblical perspective. Pray for mercy. 
And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't even know what we're talking about when we say mercy. We want to urge you to stick around afterwards and find anybody sitting near you and say, what in the world are you talking about when you say that I can have my sins forgiven? Or what are you talking about when you say that the Lord is a merciful God, that he's slow to anger and abounding in compassion? Tell me more about this God because I need to know more. And we would love to talk to you about that. The Lord will give you mercy. If the Lord is on your side, he's going to give you everything that you need. He's going to give you mercy. Psalm 124 tells you, secondly, he will give you escape. Listen as I read Psalm 124. It's a little bit of a longer psalm, but you'll notice that we sang through the themes of this song a few minutes ago. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord will give you escape. This is very different from escapism, where you try and find escape from the problems of your life, from the discouragements and uh, despair of your life by giving into some eating habits or drinking habits or entertainment habits or anything else. But the Lord will give you escape. He will rescue you from danger. And the reason you need escape is because of the threat of the hateful enemies that are described in this passage. We need the Lord on our side for one, because the enemy is so powerful. I mean, you get the sense of this just from things like the, the, the people rising up against us. They would have swallowed us up alive. Their anger was kindled against us. They were trying to... Uh, so verse 6, they have uh, the Lord has not given us as prey to their teeth. I mean, this sounds violent. This sounds disgusting. This sounds like Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and somehow the Lord kept their jaws shut. And uh, Daniel escaped because the Lord was on his side, on Daniel's side. So we need the Lord on our side because the enemy is so powerful, as described here. But secondly, because we're so weak on our own. I mean, what can we possibly do to stand up to the dangers that we face in this world? To the threats that encircle us, like sharks in the ocean. We are vulnerable to threats and dangers that we aren't even aware exist that are lurking around in the atmosphere. These enemies, physically or spiritually speaking, are described in multiple ways here in Psalm 124. It's like a ravenous beast, as we see in verse 3, they would have swallowed us up alive, or in verse 6, they would uh, destroy us as prey with their teeth. It's described, the, the, the enemies that we face are described as torrents of water, as floods, perhaps calling God's people's minds back to Genesis 6 through 9, or perhaps calling their minds back to the when the Lord separated from the, Lord, uh, the waters from one another so that God's people could walk through, but then the waters closed up on their enemies. And so maybe the psalmist is reminding God's people of that. And imagine if you were on the wrong side of that situation, and the water closed up over your head. And they were visualizing this as they, as they hear these words. But perhaps... As you think about the threats that you face, the dangers that you face, perhaps people have threatened you or a loved one. Again, whether that be in some physical way, uh, perhaps someone has, has left a note on your car in a threatening way, 
<clears throat> Perhaps you have a coworker or customer who makes your life a nightmare and you hate going to work because of that, the interactions with that person. Perhaps the danger is spiritual and sin destroys your home. Or a false teacher has gotten a foothold on someone's heart who you love and you are trying to convince them, like, no, you've got to stop listening to that person on YouTube or that person on the radio. That person's not helping you. And you're concerned about that person. Perhaps that's what the danger looks like here. But you know that even in the midst of these dangers, the Lord is on your side. You see that in verse 2. We would have been lost if we didn't have the Lord. That's the message of Psalm 124 here. What does it even mean that the Lord is on our side? It means that you know that you are secure, that you are safe, that there is not a threat in the world that can destroy you or that can even encroach upon you because you are in God's hands. Because he is standing with you. And this, you know, as I thought through various perhaps Old Testament stories, thinking of what the, the author may have had in mind as he wrote this psalm. When you think about even something as simple or as familiar to us, I should say, as David and Goliath. I mean, what did David have to say when he went off into battle against Goliath? He said, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. In other words, we have the one true God on our side, and that's what gives me the confidence to come out into battle against you. Because I don't care about my own life. I care about the honor of God's name, and you're trashing it out here in this field. So I'm coming out into battle against you because the Lord is on our side. And we could multiply that kind of example from the Old Testament over and over and over again. What's this escape look like? I mean, again, he's describing here, it's like, We were in great danger of being torn apart by ravenous lions and the Lord caused us to escape. Or we were in danger of being uh, caught in a flood, but the Lord rescued us through something like an ark or through something like parting the waters. But what about the people in, say, Acts 7, like Stephen, who for standing up for the truth was stoned? In other words, what I'm trying to do is help us realize that sometimes... Our confidence in the Lord does not translate into you having physical safety. It simply is not the case that you know, being in the center of God's will is the safest place to be. It's the place where you'll have the greatest peace, but it doesn't mean you're going to come out alive. So we need to have that perspective that you know, for, for Stephen, who's stoned in Acts 7, he didn't escape just because the Lord was on his side. Was the Lord on his side? Absolutely but it didn't mean he would have a longer physical life. Or we think about someone like Nate Saint and the other, I believe, four other guys who got in an airplane in 1956, if I remember correctly, flew to Ecuador to preach the gospel to the Alca Indians, and like on arrival were killed, were slaughtered by the very people they had gone to preach the love of Jesus to. Would... Do we need to recant on this psalm and say, well, clearly the Lord wasn't on their side? Or maybe we could say, well, the Lord wasn't in that. (laughs) No, I think he was. And I think many of the people they went to evangelize were converted later on through various normal and abnormal circumstances that the Lord used. But what we need to recognize is that just because the Lord's on our side doesn't mean you're always going to feel safe. But you can know that to have the Lord on your side is indeed a benefit, a blessing of the gospel. 
when this was written, you know, you want to ask the question, so what's it look like to have the Lord on our side? But on, on the other hand, what's it look like to be on the other side? Or who is the other side? Maybe that's the simplest way we could put it. Like, okay, it's good to have God on my side, but I don't even know who the enemy is sometimes. And so for the psalmist writing this a couple thousand, several thousand years ago, the other side was probably just simply non-Israelites, like the enemies of God who are trying to take land from Israel or keep land from Israel or any number of other uh, aspects of that. Perhaps the people that the psalmist is alluding to are the people, the very people who then would take God's people into exile. Or if this was written during or after the exile, maybe it's referring to the people like the Babylonians who took God's people into exile. But today, for us living here in the 21st century, the other side is anyone who stands opposed to God and to his people. And so this could be government officials who wish they could do anything to get us to stop exercising our, our freedoms that we have here in this country. It could be media giants. It could be people who are tempting God's people in various ways. It could be educators who are intentionally manipulating young minds to think about the world in a way that leaves God completely out of it. The options are nearly endless, depending on who you are and what your circumstances are at the moment, what the other side could be. You could be facing loneliness. You could be waiting for a fearful report from your doctor. You could be facing rejection from a family member who thinks you're a fool for coming to church. And we could go on and on. But the Lord gives you exactly what he needs. He gives you mercy. Here in 124, he gives you escape. And in Psalm 125, he gives you stability. Psalm 125 teaches that the Lord will give you exactly what you need. Particularly, he will give you stability. Hear these words from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The Lord gives you stability. The Lord gives you security. And he does this in the face of crooked adversaries. In the face of the scepter of wickedness. People seeking to lead. A scepter is something that a ruler holds, trying to lead God's people away from worshiping the one true God. Trying to get you to worship any other God. Whatever Baal looks like in your heart, in your home. But the Lord will surround you. The Lord will give you stability so that you are like Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, simply saying, you knew Jerusalem was safe because there were mountains surrounding it. There's no way they're going to be penetrated by the enemy. No, actually, you're even more secure than that because Jerusalem eventually was destroyed by the enemy. You didn't find your security behind those walls anymore. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly Nehemiah, is talking about. We have to go back and rebuild Jerusalem because the enemies have gotten in and destroyed this city. But we can know that even the way a city can be protected, we are protected by the Lord. The Lord himself surrounds us, and he does that both now 
and forevermore. Using a phrase that, again, it was back previously in Psalm 121. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So now and tomorrow and a thousand tomorrows and a thousand years of tomorrows from now, the Lord will be continuing to keep you and giving you stability. Verse 4 says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And maybe you have, maybe you kind of scratch your head for a second there and say, I thought, I've read in Romans 3 recently that there is none who is good. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And so maybe this seems like a contradiction here to you. I think what the psalmist is doing, though, as opposed to saying, Well, I, actually, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a sinner. That's not what the psalmist is saying. But relatively speaking, we have hearts that are bent toward the Lord or are bent against the Lord. I'll just ask you, which way is your heart bent? And the way you know that is by what you desire and what you crave and what you pursue and what you invest in. And all these indicators help you kind of identify which way your heart is bent. Are you bent toward the Lord or against the Lord? And those whose hearts are bent toward the Lord, in other words, those who are good and those who are upright in, the heart, in their hearts, the Lord himself will do good to those people. And this is consistent throughout the Psalms. Go back to Psalm 37, for instance. It's simply picturing the fact that there are righteous and wicked people. This is Psalm 1 playing itself out here. You could look at connections as we already did with Psalm 2 earlier. I think Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Well, here, this is just laying out the reality of Psalm 1, that there are people who walk in the way of the righteous, and there are people who walk in the way of the wicked. And Psalm 1 is all saying, you want to be with those people who are walking in the way of the righteous. Jesus himself was the perfect example of of walking in the way of the righteous. He is the blessed man who's... Uh, heart is like the tree planted by rivers of waters in Psalm 1. But what the psalmist has in mind here is those whose hearts are bent to doing what is right, seeking to follow the Lord wherever he goes. So how does the Lord do good here in verse 4? Or how could we, we could ask it this way, how does the Lord show you that he's on your side? Like, how does he actually help us in real time? And this could take lots of different forms. Okay, again, this kind of is going to vary based on your circumstances. What the situation in life is that makes you realize, I need the Lord right now. Like, I really need to have the right people on my side. In this case, I need to have the right man on my side. And that would be Jesus Christ. So how does the Lord show you that he is on his side? Or how does he help you in real time? One way he does this, and it's so encouraging when it happens, is the Lord brings you godly friends at the right moment who check in on you, who text you or call you or email you or catch you after a worship service or take you out for a meal and just encourage you. And these are people that the Lord uses to shepherd you, to teach you, to simply be like a life vest to you that holds you up and encourages you in a hard time. And I would just ask you, who is your godliest friend? Like if you needed a godly friend to help hold you up, On your darkest of days, who are you going to contact? Lean into that person. Maybe you don't need to tell them, hey, you're my godliest friend. Probably don't tell them that. But you can still spend a lot of time with them. You can still thank them for their good influence in your life and lean into that relationship so that they are available to you 
at the right moment. The Lord also reminds you and teaches you truth from Scripture. He builds stability in your heart through His Word. It's like the more you read the Word of God and you bathe yourself in the themes and in the concepts of the Word of God and you simply start breathing in the air of the Word of God, your roots go deeper in the ground and they spread wider into the earth. And when the wind blows, you aren't shaken hardly at all because you have been so rooted and grounded in the Word of God, to use language from the book of Colossians. So the Lord can teach you from Scripture, and maybe He does that just by the songs that you listen to. I appreciate that Eddie intentionally thinks through what songs to play before and after worship services and during the offertory and times like that. So that you are hearing, as you heard right before I got up this morning, Complete in Thee, a beautiful song that walks through the doctrines of justification and sanctification and glorification. And those truths can weave their way through your heart throughout the day and while you're lying there in bed and you can't sleep and you can think through that song because you've heard it enough times, you know the lyrics and you can hum it to yourself while you're getting ready for the day and in so doing, the Lord helps you in real time and he stabilizes you and he reminds you, God himself is on my side. The Lord can provide a way of escape. When we think of language from passages like 1 Corinthians 10, He helps us in real time by showing us, I don't have to give in to this temptation. I don't have to listen to this garbage spewed by this false teacher. I don't have to engage in this hard situation in this way. The Lord Himself can give me a way of escape. The Lord does indeed help us in real time. And so while we as Christians can know that the Lord is on our side, I just want to give a word of warning based on this passage that there are people who are crooked and who will be led away with evildoers. That if you are not a Christian, you have not put your hope in Jesus, you are not leaning on the everlasting arms, the Lord is not on your side. He's not on everybody's side. This is like from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's whose shepherd? Not everybody's. Those who trust in Him. He's their shepherd. He's on your side. He's on whose side? He's on the side of those who have trusted in Him, who have repented of their sins and leaned into the truths of the Gospel. But He is not on your side if you are holding out your hand and you are resisting Him. This is James 4. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but He will resist you. He will resist the proud. You want to know that the Lord is on your side. You want to know that the right person is on your side. And Martin Luther alluded to a passage like this one in Romans 8, which we'll talk about in a moment, when he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. Perhaps you remember from one of the verses of that song, We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We'd be in big trouble. That's what he's saying in that verse. In much more eloquent language. But we'd be in a real mess if the right man were not on our side. Jesus Christ is the right man who is on our side. Where did Martin Luther get that idea? Well, he got the idea that God is on our side from this passage. He also got it from Romans 8. And we used this passage just last week as our assurance of forgiveness after Luke prayed the prayer of confession. But I want to read these words again from Romans 8 just to let them echo in your mind and reverberate in your heart throughout this coming week. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If God is on our side, who can be on the other side? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So maybe we could ask it this way. How did people living under the Old Testament, living in the Old Testament era, how did they know that God was on their side? Well, by the fact that they could turn around and see that God had separated the waters and then he closed them up together, right? Like they could think through their history as a group of people, as a nation, and say, look, their God was with us. There's proof that God was on our side. And here's proof that God's on our side. How do we as people living on this side of the cross, how do we know that God's on our side? Through the cross itself. The cross is the single greatest declaration of the fact that God is for you, that he is on your side. That was the defining moment that shows that God will do what is best for his people. He's going to give up his own son for you. So if he's going to give up his son, what is he not going to give up for you? How will he not graciously give you all things, Paul asks? What are those all things? Well, things like grace, things like mercy, things like escape, Things like stability, as we've talked about just the last few minutes. He'll give you patience in suffering. He'll help you keep going on those hard days. He'll give you endurance. The Lord will graciously give you all things. And in a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. What is the Lord's Supper if not a sensory reminder, something we taste and smell and hold in our hands for a moment? Not in that order. (laughs) It's a sensory reminder that God is for you. Jesus broke his body for you. He's on your side. Jesus shed his blood for you. God is on your side. So how will the Lord not give you endurance to keep suffering in a way that honors him? And so if you have never experienced saving grace, we would ask you not to take the Lord's Supper It's not a game we play. It's not something we do for show. It's not a way of proving to everybody else that's watching that I'm on the inside. If you have not experienced saving grace, please don't take the Lord's Supper. But if you have experienced this saving grace, we want to encourage you to take and eat and be reminded of the grace, the mercy, the stability that God gives you. And again, if you you are not a Christian, if you haven't experienced saving grace, don't stop at not taking the Lord's Supper. Take it a next step after the service and say, I actually would love to know more about saving grace and what it even means to be a Christian in the first place. Yesterday, for the first time in the 15 days or so that this pastor in Virginia has been emailing me and other friends about his daughter, for the first time yesterday, she blinked. And he, he was like, Honey, did you just, did you just blink? And he's been sitting there at her bedside. He slept at the hospital every night except one these last several weeks, just watching her, praying over her, singing to her, reading to her, not sure what she's hearing. And he saw a blink. He said, honey, if you blinked, if you did it on purpose, will you blink again? And she blinked again. Later on, she squeezed her mom's hand. I mean, these were like consequential moments for this family who have been watching this hospital bed for weeks, day after day, night after night. And in the, uh, the email update where he shared that this morning, I just want to read a a quote that this pastor shares. 
He said, our family is being ushered to the front row of seeking God. We have no other choice. We recognize our need for him, as we've talked about in this passage today, in a way that we had grown cold to. Could this have happened any other way? That's not by the, the way that God's exposing themselves to their uh, need for him. He says, that's not my business. I believe the words of Charles Spurgeon. Here are the words. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. I think that's a pretty powerful idea. Charles Spurgeon says, if any other condition had been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. God knows better than we do. He knows exactly what you need. So Christian, the Lord is on your side. So you can face whatever he sends your way. Trust him and live with certainty that he will truly give you all that you need. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for overcoming the spiritual dangers that we face, the physical dangers that we face, the opposition that we face, the persecution perhaps that some in our congregation may face at their workplace or when they gather with their unsaved family members, their not yet believing friends. But we pray that you would hold us up, that you would remind us that you have indeed given us the right man on our side. We ask who that is. Christ Jesus, it is he. He truly is on our side, and you have proven that to us by his death, by his resurrection, and by his soon coming. And so as we wait for him to come, help us to believe in all of our hearts, with all of our hearts, that you are on our side. In Christ's name, amen. Let's